Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Chelsea Martin is the author of six books, including the novella Mickey and the essay collection Caca Dolce, Essays from a Lowbrow Life. Her most recent work, the novel Tell Me I'm an Artist, is the story of Joey, a student at a San Francisco art school who must balance a disintegrating family life in Lodi, California, with the pressures of creating art when you don't come from privilege. The novel opens as Joey has decided on a final project that will be a remake of the film Rushmore, with the conceit being that she will have never seen the actual film. Her painful entry into the world of high-concept art is undergirded by the news that her drug-addicted sister, Jenny, has disappeared. She is increasingly called upon by her mother to act as a surrogate parent for Jenny. As her art project starts and sputters, Joey comes face-to-face with what a lack of privilege means for her future in the art world. Her talented and enviable friend, Suze, moves through the art world unconcerned by issues of money and status, and Joey is drawn to her like a moth to the flame. In uncommonly funny prose, Chelsea Martin introduces us to a truly original voice in contemporary fiction. In her hands, the recognizable story of the struggling artist is transformed into a narrative about intractable class structures and the walls they build around people, and the responsibilities we carry to family, even when family is that which holds us down. I tore through Tell Me I'm an Artist, and it is such a pleasure to welcome Chelsea Martin to the show. Hi, thank you so much. That was a beautiful synopsis. Thank you very much for being here. Um, 
I think we just need to get this out of the way. Why Rushmore? <laughs> Good question. That Rushmore is just one of those movies that's stuck in my mind as as something in in the zeitgeist of young artists. I think I have always felt well i've never seen it so i've always oh you haven't seen it in real life no i haven't seen it in real life (laughs) and it just seems like one of those movies that everyone's seen and everyone references and especially people around me and in art school and like creative people that i found after art school have just used it as as like a baseline for whatever and that's kind of repulsed me in a way and I never wanted to watch it and it just seemed like a like it seemed like I had to choose something that was that I had never seen so that I could have that kind of you know accuracy in Joey's experience and not draw too much from the film I was supposed she had supposedly never seen so it just seemed like the perfect movie to to start with I mean, it's perfect in a lot of ways, and I'm actually shocked that you haven't seen it because, and we can talk more about this later if, if you like. Um, but I do think the questions of class and and privilege in institutions that so sort of favor and weight those who come from privilege in who is seen as successful. I mean, that's really at the heart of Rushmore. Oh, cool. But, but I also see how it might come across <laughs> as a art school project gone off the rails because everything is so overly produced and highly designed to the point of being, you know, what many people call his sort of dollhouse aesthetic, even gotcha, though I, yeah. I will admit to loving the movie. Oh, good. <laughs> um, uh, so, it, you know, it's it's very clear to me that it, you know, it it has some kind of iconic power for you, even though you haven't seen it. So what were you drawing on as a way to think through what Joey would have known about, what she wouldn't have, and how it would have perhaps resonated with the worst parts of what you think of art school? Well, I was mostly drawing from my own experience with it. I I just drew heavily from my own kind of assumptions about the movie and I would sort of also sneak it into conversations with people in a way that they weren't, you know, they didn't feel like research to me, but, you know, get like, oh, have you seen Rushmore? You know, things like that, just to like get little tidbits of, of like, what is in this movie? Like, what could she possibly be being told by, by the people she's trying to collect information from? I wasn't focused too much on Rushmore itself or, or trying to get anything about it right. And so there was, you didn't have any knowledge of its, its sort of class divide. Piece I had no idea, honestly. But I I do think that that kind of thing is easy to read into a lot of movies when you're looking for it. I mean, I haven't, again, haven't seen Rushmore, so maybe it's just like blatantly the theme, but... So there's there's a, an an incredible line that Bill Murray delivers as he visits the private school um, where uh, Jason Schwartzman's character goes goes to school and and he says his one bit of advice is get the rich kids in your sights and take them down oh um, and that becomes a kind of uh, really a sort of mantra for the for the main character but it, it oh. I, I mean it's sort of amazing how much it, yeah. it, it works with you I, so I love that you didn't see it you're just instead an oracle for it yeah it's really yeah i i mean maybe it just was so in the zeitgeist of that of that idea that it just 
felt natural for this mm. book. I don't know. That makes sense to me. Subliminally connected to that. Joey's experience of making art is always filtered through her own economic precarity. She, like Leonard Bast in Howard's End, is always standing on the edge of the abyss of poverty, waiting for what she sees as the inevitable fall. At times, you suggest that making art requires certain privileges or at least a stability that Joey does not and perhaps cannot have. Could you talk a little bit about privilege and the production of art? Well, art takes a lot of time to make. So just starting there, regardless of, you know, talent or scope of project or resources needed for it, you need the time. It's absolutely non-negotiable. So for someone who doesn't have the time, which is most people who don't have money, then that just, you're starting off at such a disadvantage to try to make anything. And I think that's really like what Joey is struggling with mostly is, is finding the time to think about her projects and think about her um, growth as an artist while she's bombarded with all of these messy life things that are more important and can't be just like paid away with money like like her more privileged privileged friends probably could if they were faced with the same problems yeah that's true and even as joey discovers that the art world is not meant to be welcoming to someone of her status she still believes that making art is central or perhaps could be central to who she is and who she might become is there hope for a sort of art as as containing that core of um of self-actualization, of uh, uh, even just as a career for someone who doesn't come out of that commercial world of privileged artists? Yeah, of course there's hope. I think it's just the classic, you know, it's just going to be much harder for her and she's going to have to be way more focused and she's going to have to really earn it. And that's a really hard thing to face when you're young and you don't know for sure what you're doing and you don't have the luxury of like just spending all this time figuring out whether or not it's the thing you want to be doing. Mm. It's, you know, she's putting all her eggs in this basket. Um, this is, this is it kind of. And I guess that's why Suze is such a great foil for her uh, uh, as someone who just sort of slips through the the art world almost like f with without friction yeah. and is never bothered by concerns over money or cultural capital or who she might know or not know. Um, why did you decide to make that sort of foil relationship the the center of the book? I found that relationship really interesting for for the fact that you know Suze is kind of everything Joey wants to be she is managing to become an artist sort of easily and and has all this confidence built up about her art and about her um her entitlement to be an artist and and you know I wanted Suze to be a likable character she's not she's not mean she's not greedy she's just a young person who's 
who's doing exactly what Joey's doing, just trying to find her place in the world and trying to to do a good job and 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 find out who she is. And so I thought, you know, kind of having um, a foil that was also just a really great person was interesting and someone that Joey wanted to be and and also was just insanely jealous of and and couldn't really get past that jealousy to actually form a connection because this this idea of privilege was just too in the way for her i i liked her certainly suze but i also found her just it, she she makes basically zero effort to understand where Joey might be coming from and that that might be a different experience of this world uh, in art school and beyond than her own. And I found that quite maddening. Right. But Joey doesn't give her a lot of opportunity to to understand her at all. That's true. That's and true. is kind of hiding from her in ways that I don't know. I I feel like I don't know. Suze to me is a good person and is just kind of on you know, she's just on a different level kind of. She has much different concerns than Joey and she probably just doesn't pick up on the things Joey's worried about because she has never had to deal with them and Joey's not telling her. So it's not really her fault that they're not connecting either. One thing that sets tell me I'm an artist apart from novels about be, trying to become an artist is the simmering mystery and tragedy of Joey's sister, Jenny, who has left her child with her mother and disappeared to Reno. Almost everything that happens to Jenny comes to us via texts between her and Joey and Joey and their mother. Yet it weighs heavily as a narrative driver, even though it's off screen. How did you balance wanting Jenny's disappearance to be so fundamental while wanting to keep it just outside of the, the main frame? Well, the, one of the things I wanted going in is, was these important characters that were never seen. That just seemed like an interesting idea to me, that you would have a whole storyline including them. and they just aren't really part of it and you never see them. Um, but I also wanted it to have, I wanted it to feel like it had like the situation with her sister and leaving um, her baby, Joey's nephew. That is so hugely dramatic and important, but I wanted it to feel like equally weighted as Joey's Rushmore project and her friendships at school at college so that was kind of the balancing act in my mind of of trying to make it feel like she's juggling all these equally weighted problems when someone who's not in that situation stepping away would probably not weigh them equally mm. but for mm -hmm. joey she would it's her life and these are the things she's choosing to focus on and then these other things are happening to her or you know out, around her and she views them in, in equal weights and wants equally to have them, have, solve them, I guess, or have them go away. Would you be willing to read a short section for us? I, I think it will give us a sense of this triangle relationship between Joey, her mom, and her sister, the latter two of whom, um, as you say, we don't see but are so important to Joey's life. Yeah. The front of my phone lit up with my mom's name and phone number. 
We hadn't talked since a few days before when I refused to quit college to watch my nephew while my sister screwed someone from GameStop. Can you call Jenny and ask her to stop being such a selfish bitch? She needs to come home. How exactly am I supposed to phrase that, I said. I don't know, Joey, but if things continue like they are, I'm going to pack my things and no one is going to hear from me ever again. She'd made me promise to call Jenny, but I knew I wouldn't. Being a selfish bitch was such a personal choice, and it didn't feel right to suggest how or when a person should or shouldn't do it. Plus, I didn't believe there was ever an example of someone asking someone to stop being a bitch and it working. I pressed the buttons on my phone that would bring up Jenny's number, trying to imagine what it would feel like if mom had really run away, what I might say to Jenny about it. Then I imagined what would happen if I disappeared, how long it would take my family to realize I was gone, if they would ever go looking for me. Thank you so much. I think that's a wonderful illustration of the two kind of tonal dissonant things happening in throughout this novel. It's it's an incredibly funny novel. Um, laugh out loud, read it to your friends funny. But it is, as it's clear from that section that you've read, it's so painfully sad and and existentially so. I mean, the the number of times that Joey has to consider whether she will just hear about secondhand that her sister is dead, or mm -hmm. that her you know her mother may have left uh, and not to be heard from. How did you manage the coexistence of both tonal aspects of the novel? They, I think, they really needed each other to to pull this kind of book off. I. I don't think, you know, my inclination is to, is to write funny and that is what makes me the most comfortable and the most interested in writing and, you know, entertained while I'm writing. But this book really needed like a heavy heart. I, I feel to, to get all the points across that I wanted to. And I think Joey really needed to have all these sad thoughts, but also have kind of a detachment about her situation so that she could live and be a person and be a college student. She had to kind of remove herself from, from these tragedies and, and step away and have a sense of humor about them. So I think that they were, it was just necessary. Yeah. I mean, they play together really well in the novel and it, you find yourself quite surprised as you're laughing, but then you feel this sort of hollowness in your gut as you realize what you're laughing about. Right. And I guess that's the, you know, that's the, the double side of, of humor is that it often is revealing of very sad things. Yes, definitely. And, and it's a way to I think for someone like Joey, who's who's afraid of revealing too much or even to herself and kind of isn't comfortable um, with who she is, I think it's a way for her to say things and not have them feel so heavy, um, even to herself, which I think which is, you know, kind of the the perspective of the book. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. 
Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You play a lot with formal inventions on the page. A reader will encounter section breaks that appear to be handwritten or scrawled across the page, job advertisements, and also the fascinating use of internet search histories that include lists of terribly sad aspects of Joey's life, including, quote, free art supplies, jobs for artists that pay, and hilariously has wrong interpretation of movie ever ever ruined someone's life. Why did you reach for these kinds of formal breaks from the regular look and function of prose on the page? I think instinctually, I just thought that, um, that the book, I didn't want the book to feel so claustrophobic by being so in Joey's mind and, you know, first person, first person narrations can sometimes do that for me, like I just feel too overwhelmed by the inner monologue and, and the thought processes. Mm -hmm. So it was a way for me to, to allow the reader to step out of Joey's brain and kind of see her outside of herself and kind of have, be an invitation to bring your own thoughts to the book too. And, and sort of judge, judge her or, or just, yeah, just just see her in a different light that wasn't the one she was painting for herself, and kind of see the world she was living in and these these jobs she was searching for and snippets of of her journal or whatever, however you would interpret the handwritten parts. Every job advertisement posting that Joey encounters tries to put a happy face on near utter exploitation. <laughs> What's the relationship between trying to become an artist and a willingness to be exploited? What's the what's the connection you said? Yeah, the relationship between the relationship. those two things. Because it feels in the novel like so strongly linked to should you wish to enter this world, you must agree to these happy-sounding slave labors. Yeah, well, that's just real. I mean, that's just what I've experienced looking for art-related jobs. And it seems kind of ubiquitous in all in all the arts is just people are just very ready to exploit you. And and make you try to make you feel good about it as if you're doing a charity or, you know, like just that this doesn't take any time at all to do your work. So I think that that was the main driver for for including those um, or, you know, having that tone in the in the job searches she was looking at. And it's also I think. I, like I would assume as a reader that there were other job postings that weren't as interesting that were just sort of like bland job postings that weren't included in the book. But these were the examples that were the most shocking or, or the ones that made her close her laptop immediately yeah. or whatever. Yeah, they're pretty, they're hilarious. And then in, in, in a way that's similar to a lot of the humor in the novel, you feel terrible for finding them hilarious because they do feel so true to life and true yeah. to what is required for an artist if they want to sort of get their name out there. 
And because she can't find a job, it's inferred that these jobs mm-hmm. are very competitive still, and <laughs> she she just can't get her hands on one of these just totally exploitative <laughs> positions. If, if only. Yeah. Um, beyond the questions about the artist and privilege, you ask a larger question about family and responsibility. Specifically, if one's family is a su- source of trauma and damage, how much is owed to them by the nature of blood relation? How do you think the novel engages this question? Joe, yeah, Joey throughout the book is is just constantly questioning what she should do about her family, basically. Like, should she help them if she has the resources? But if they would, if giving that support would end what, you know, the track she's on that she chose, is it worth it if she could? If she can, shouldn't she? I think th- I think that's just kind of an assumption in our culture that that family helps family. I hear all the time from all kinds of people that you just step up when your family needs you, and you do whatever you can do. And I think people want to believe that because, like, especially now, we just don't have very much community, and family is kind of the only community that sticks with us our whole lives. And if you don't have something like that, then you, I think you would feel really lost and kind of um, alone. And I think that's what Joey's grappling with is, is just like if she releases the guilt and, and um, responsibility she has for her family, then what does she have? Because she doesn't have a real community at school yet. She doesn't, she hasn't made her own life yet. And it, it feels like, you know, she's just out there in the world for the first time. She's a sophomore in college and it's, it's just this incredibly um, sticky situation. She finds herself in that, that her family's asking almost impossible things from her, but she feels like she has to give them anyway. Yeah, they are really impossible things. And it and it made me I think you're right, absolutely, that that family and, and blood relatives are a, are one of the few remaining ways in which we have a, a, a kind of natural community as Americans. Mm-hmm. And yet the things that Joey's family asks bankrupt her or ask her to leave any sense of, uh, you know, of her ability to escape the kind of gravity of that family, which is to be sort of like stagnant and and not able to move out of their situation and to leave that behind in order to just kind of perpetuate things that keep traumatizing her. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that, how that comes into the equation of, of helping family at all costs. Yeah, and it's also the idea of 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 reciprocation or or being able mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. lean on your family when you need to. And I don't mm-hmm. think Joey has a sense that she would be able to, or that the problems she's facing would would be, um, you know, f- respected at all by her mom and her sister. I think they would like Joey imagines it a few times i think in the book of of coming to them with problems and imagines them just kind of laughing it off and being like you're so spoiled and entitled and these aren't problems these are just extremely luxurious things you're mm-hmm. choosing to do and and so i think that's a big part of it too when you're trying to leave you know a traumatic 
chaotic group. And of course they don't want you to because they need, you know, they are used to your help and expect it and they don't want you to have anything better. It doesn't go away. The guilt and the feeling of an onus you have to to care for your family when they need you, even with, to use your words, it's not reciprocal reciprocated mm -hmm. it still exists and we see that i think that's why fiction is is so great as a means to interrogate that that kind of contradiction because right. we see in joey that she is so incredibly driven by guilt that she should be helping as much as she can even when it is injurious to her mm -hmm. So before I let you go, I would love to know a little bit about what you've been reading recently that you like or, or whether you have any specific recommendations for us. So last night, actually, I just finished this book called The Tiger in the Cage by Emma Bolden. And it's it's coming out, I think, next week or in a couple of weeks. And it's it's so good. And um, it's it's a memoir about kind of chronic pain and um and like misdiagnosis, uh, mixed diagnoses, and um, and like it's just it's just horribly sad, and and manages to be funny and light and like heartwarming, and I just love it so much. Mm. <laughs> really recommend it. That sounds great. And you said it's it's not out yet, but it will be out soon. Yeah, it's it's coming out from Soft School. Oh, great! This month, yeah. Um, well, I'll make sure that we put this up on the website so that when it's out, folks can get a hold of the copy. Um, but I very much recommend Tell Me I'm an Artist by Chelsea Martin. What a wonderful book. Um, it's so rich, funny, sad, heartbreaking, um, hopeful. And I know uh, that my listeners will love it. So thank you so much, Chelsea, for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. Well, that's all from me today. My thanks to Chelsea Martin. Her novel, Tell Me I'm an Artist, is available now from Soft Skull Press. I'll have a link for you to purchase this and other recommended books on the website at burnedbybooks.com. Make sure to tune in next week for my interviews with Andrea Barrett and Tess Gunty. But for now, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.